The prevailing influence on volume one was the sentimental novel, an 18th century genre in which a heroine struggles against emotional turmoil, witty conversations, social mores, and needless misunderstandings. But the prevailing influence on volume two is a different 18th century genre, the gothic novel, which takes all the emotional turmoil of the sentimental novel and locates it among mist-shrouded landscapes, dark medieval buildings, and monsters, both supernatural and human. This is Open Book, a podcast about interpreting literature with Michael Elliott. Welcome to Open Book, Episode 17, How to Read Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey, Volume 2. I'm Michael Elliott, Associate Professor of English at the University of Calgary. Today's topic is the second volume of Northanger Abbey, completing the series I began in Episode 15. As before, we're using David M. Shapard's 2013 edition, rich with annotations and illustrations. Jane Austen's first novel is the story of 17-year-old Catherine Morland. Open, candid, artless, guileless, with affections strong but simple, forming no pretensions and knowing no disguise. That's from her future husband Henry Tilney's description of someone else, inadvertently describing his ideal partner on page 418. In this episode, we'll explore Catherine's strong but simple affections, her love of Henry, her enthusiasm for novels, her unpretentious generosity of spirit, and her manipulation and mistreatment by two selfish men, John Thorpe and General Tilney. And we'll witness Catherine's misadventures on her brief journey from impressionable provincial ingenue to contentedly married wife. My previous episode, number 15, on this novel covered volume one, in which Catherine Morland left the sleepy Wiltshire village of Fullerton to emerge into the glamorous social scene of Bath, second only to London for its glittering balls and opportunities for romance. Catherine very soon met the members of two families, the Thorpes, Isabella and John, and the Tilneys, Henry and Eleanor. John Thorpe and Henry Tilney compete for Catherine's attention, but she bestows her affection on Henry. John Thorpe, slow to recognize this, believes that she intends to accept his imminent marriage proposal. And when we last saw our heroine at the end of Volume 1, Catherine bade farewell to John Thorpe. He inferred from their conversation in which he made a passing reference to marriages and asked to visit her parents at Fullerton, that she was amenable to his marriage proposal, something she was utterly unprepared to do. Such are the roundabout, indirect ways of courtship in Jane Austen novels that lead to misunderstandings. John's brother Isabella says to Catherine on page 288, his attentions were such as a child must have noticed, and it was but half an hour before he left Bath that you gave him the most positive encouragement. He says so in this letter, says that he as good as made you an offer, and that you received his advances in the kindest way. But Catherine, in response, 
says, quote, I solemnly protest that no syllable of such a nature ever passed between us. This is the kind of directness, the openness that characterizes Catherine. John Thorpe's sense of betrayal, though, will be Catherine's undoing later on in Volume 2 when he meets Henry Tilney's father, General Tilney, in London and spreads lies about Catherine's fortunes. But more about that in a moment. Meanwhile, John's sister Isabella Thorpe is a foil for our heroine, a false and vacuous friend. She and Catherine's brother John, who's an otherwise minor character, become engaged at the end of Volume 1 before Isabella betrays him in Volume 2. prevailing influence on Volume 1 was the sentimental novel, an 18th century genre in which a heroine struggles against emotional turmoil, witty conversations, social mores, and needless misunderstandings. Ultimately, the sentimental heroine reaches some kind of happy resolution, usually a conventional marriage. But the prevailing influence on Volume 2 is a different 18th century genre, the gothic novel which takes all the emotional turmoil of the sentimental novel and locates it among mist-shrouded landscapes, dark medieval buildings, and monsters, both supernatural and human. Catherine has read many Gothic novels, and she longs to live within one. So, when the Tilneys invite her to Northanger Abbey, she feels like her dream is on the verge of reality. Consider her words at the bottom of page 280. Northanger Abbey. These were thrilling words and wound up Catherine's feelings to the highest point of ecstasy. Her grateful and gratified heart could hardly restrain its expressions within the language of tolerable calmness to receive so flattering an invitation, to have her company so warmly solicited, everything honorable and soothing, every present employment and every future hope was contained in it. And further down the page on 282, this indulgence, though not more than Catherine had hoped for, completed her conviction of being favored beyond every other human creature in friends and fortune, circumstance and chance. Everything seemed to cooperate for her advantage. But it's not until 284 that we get a true understanding of how this is both a personal and an imaginative gratitude that she feels. Her passion for ancient edifices was next in degree to her passion for Henry Tilney, and castles and abbeys made usually the charm of those reveries which his image did not fill. To see and explore either the ramparts and keep of the one or the cloisters of the other had been for many weeks a darling wish, though to be more than the visitor of an hour had seemed too nearly impossible for desire, and yet this was to happen with all the chances against her of house, hall, place, park, court, and cottage. Northanger turned up an abbey, and she was to be its inhabitant, its long, damp passages, its narrow cells and ruined chapel, were to be within her daily reach, and she could not entirely subdue the hope of some 
traditional legends, some awful memorials of an injured and ill-fated nun. With all of these prospects inhabiting her imagination, it's not difficult for, on the carriage ride to Northanger, Henry to tease and entertain Catherine with an even more elaborate fantasy of the kinds of experiences that she may have there, resembling those that she has read in books. Henry makes up an elaborate fantasy about her arrival there, finding it full of secret panels and tapestries, gloomy passageways and dark rooms with only a candle to light them, hidden doorways to underground rooms with instruments of murder and torture. It's all so exciting to Catherine that she declares it, quote, just like a book on page 320. And soon enough, they arrive at the Abbey itself. But real life offers a comparatively more diminished sense of foreboding. This is from page 324. To pass between lodges of a modern appearance, to find herself with such ease in the very precincts of the abbey, and driven so rapidly along a smooth level road of fine gravel, without obstacle, alarm, or solemnity of any kind, struck her as odd and inconsistent. She was not long at leisure, however, for such considerations. A sudden scud of rain driving full in her face made it impossible for her to observe anything further, and fixed all her thoughts on the welfare of her new straw bonnet. And she was actually under the abbey walls, was springing with Henry's assistance from the carriage, was beneath the shelter of the old porch, and had even passed on to the hall where her friend and the general were waiting to welcome her without feeling one awful foreboding of future misery to herself or one moment's suspicion of any past scenes of horror being acted within this solemn edifice. It is, in other words, a great disappointment to Catherine. Look at her conclusion on 328. To an imagination which had hoped for the smallest divisions and the heaviest stonework, for painted glass, dirt, and cobwebs, the difference was very distressing. She's speaking there, by the way, about the tiny panes of glass that are traditional in medieval buildings, but which Northanger, with its modern conveniences, lacks. Nonetheless, Catherine is primed to exercise her imagination, and on the very first night that she stays there, there's a raging storm, just like the one that Henry described in his story. And in her room, Catherine finds a cabinet with a secret compartment, just like in Henry's story. But instead of finding the sad account of some imprisoned lady, it's a quotidian list of household bills. As she says on 354, nothing could now be clearer than the absurdity of her recent fancies. That said, Catherine's self-reproach doesn't last very long. Her very next fantasy is to imagine that the late Mrs. Tilney, allegedly deceased these nine years, is actually imprisoned somewhere in Northanger Abbey. Because on a tour of the house, Catherine is told that there are some corridors she's forbidden to enter, and she learns that they lead to the rooms where Mrs. Tilney died. 
Catherine's fantasy has something to do, though, with the character of General Tilney, who is Henry and Eleanor's cantankerous and socially hyper-aware father. Catherine's been forming an aversion to General Tilney for some days now, and now it is confirmed. Look at page 384. Could it be possible? Could Henry's father? And yet, how many were the examples to justify even the blackest suspicions? And when she saw him in the evening, while he, she worked with her friend, slowly pacing the drawing room for an hour together in silent thoughtfulness, with downcast eyes and contracted brow, she felt secure from all possibility of wronging him. It was the air and attitude of a Montoni. What could more plainly speak the gloomy workings of a mind not wholly dead to every sense of humanity in its fearful review of past scenes of guilt? Unhappy man. Montoni, by the way, is the main villain of Anne Radcliffe's The Mysteries of Udolpho. And now Catherine's model for the kind of harsh treatment that uh, she believes um, General Tilney is inflicting on his imprisoned wife. The scenario that Catherine comes up with is elaborated on 386. Something was to be done which could be done only while the household slept, and the probability that Mrs. Tilney yet lived shut up for causes unknown and receiving from the pitiless hand of her husband a nightly supply of coarse food was the conclusion which necessarily followed. Catherine has a brief moment of doubt, but on 388 reaffirms that what she has seen can only lead to these wild surmises. Catherine sometimes started at the boldness of her own surmises and sometimes hoped or feared that she had gone too far, but they were supported by such appearances as made their dismissal impossible. Pretty shortly after all this, however, Henry disabuses her of many of these surmises. Look at page 404 when he says, Dear Miss Moreland, consider the dreadful nature of the suspicions you have entertained. What have you been judging from? Remember the country and the age in which we live. Remember that we are English, that we are Christians. Consult your own understanding, your own sense of the probable, your own observation of what is passing around you. Henry's brand of muscular, vigorous Protestantism seems to have worked its work on Catherine because on 406... She says, the visions of romance were over. Catherine was completely awakened. Henry's address, short as it had been, had more thoroughly opened her eyes to the extravagance of her late fancies than all their several disappointments had done. The transition is pretty immediate, and her self-recognition and uh, self-reproach is strong. What seems to have had a really decisive effect on Catherine is this uh, recourse to the nationalist argument, that is to say that those fantasies of people like Montoni uh, and the mysteries of Udolpho are foreign somehow. Look at page 408. Charming as were all Mrs. Radcliffe's works, that is, Anne Radcliffe, the author of the mysteries of Udolpho, 
and charming even as were the works of all her imitators, that is, all the other Gothic novelists, it was not in them, perhaps, that human nature, at least in the Midland counties of England, was to be looked for. And so, before long, page 410, quote, the anxieties of common life began soon to succeed to the alarms of romance. Or, I should say, the alarms of romance, the genre of fantastical events which gave the Gothic novel so many of its conventions. But maybe it is romance. It's kind of hard to say, because very shortly after this, a letter from her brother, James, brings those anxieties of common life into quite stark relief. I'm referring, of course, to the misfortune of James Moreland and Isabella Thorpe's engagement. At the very first ball in Bath, in Volume 2, Isabella has no sooner announced her engagement to James than she begins to attract and enjoy the attention of Henry's newly arrived older brother, the army captain Frederick Tilney. Although Isabella dismisses Frederick on page 272 as a tedious, quote, rattle or talkative bore, and, quote, not at all in my style of beauty, Catherine suspects otherwise, particularly after Isabella expresses her disappointment that her fiancé James won't come into his, in his fortune soon enough for her liking. Isabella, like her brother John, is preoccupied with money, and when she meets Frederick Tilney again, she encourages him by flirting with him. In chapter 4, Catherine asked Henry to tell his brother to stop it, but he demurs. And now, in chapter 10, the letter from James has announced the worst, the end of his engagement to Isabella. Her duplicity hurts me more than all, he writes on 412. Till the very last, if I reasoned with her, she declared herself as much attached to me as ever and laughed at my fears. Catherine, on receiving this, is utterly disconsolate. Despite being at her beloved Northanger Abbey, look at page 430. The past, present, and future were all equally in gloom. Her brother so unhappy, and her loss in Isabella so great, and Eleanor's spirits always affected by Henry's absence. What was there to interest or amuse her? She was tired of the woods and the shrubberies, always so smooth and so dry, and the abbey in itself was no more to her now than any other house. The painful remembrance of the folly it had helped to nourish and perfect was the only emotion which could spring from a consideration of the building. What a revolution in her ideas! She who had so longed to be in an abbey. In the midst of this sadness comes the letter from Isabella, claiming she, quote, abhors Frederick, and asking Catherine to write to her brother on Isabella's behalf. Catherine categorically repudiates her. Look at page 444. 
Such a strain of shallow artifice could not impose even upon Catherine. Its inconsistencies, contradictions, and falsehood struck her from the very first. She was ashamed of Isabella and ashamed of having ever loved her. Her professions of attachment were now as disgusting as her excuses were empty and her demands impudent. And that is the last we ever hear of Isabella. father, General Tilney, is the closest Northanger Abbey comes to a villain. Many of the novel's events depend on his readiness to manipulate and deceive people in order to promote his children's marriages to desirable partners. Like I said before, General Tilney is both socially hyper-aware and cantankerous, which means cranky. If you recall their travels from Bath to Northanger, on page 312, General Tilney, quote, seemed always a check upon his children's spirits, mostly because he spends all of his time being angrily impatient with other people, uh, being unhappy with what the offerings are at different inns that they stop at, and this tiresome attitude of negativity, quote, appeared to lengthen the two hours into four And when General Tilney finally leaves Northanger Abbey for London, Catherine is at last happy again. Look at her uh, description on page 448. His departure gave Catherine the first experimental conviction that a loss may be sometimes a gain. The happiness with which their time now passed, every employment voluntary, every laugh indulged, every meal a scene of ease and good humour, walking where they liked and when they liked, their hours, pleasures, and fatigues at their own command, made her thoroughly sensible of the restraint which the general's presence had imposed, and most thankfully feel their present release from it. But the problem, frankly, is not just restraint and ill-temperedness. It's also direct and unthinkable manipulation. Henry has to explain to Catherine at the end of the novel just how manipulative his father has been. Having met John Thorpe in Bath way back in volume one and hearing from Thorpe an exaggerated account of the Moreland family's fortunes, now in volume two, or rather, shortly after that, in volume two, General, General Tilney contrived to invite Catherine to Northanger Abbey, the family's Gloucestershire estate, explicitly in order to ruin Thorpe's intended match with Catherine and to promote his son Henry in Thorpe's stead. The explanation of Henry to Catherine really um, begins on page 496. Already had he, that is the general, discerned a liking towards Miss Moreland in the countenance of his son, that is Henry, and thankful for Mr. Thorpe's communication, he almost instantly determined to spare no pains in weakening his, that is Thorpe's, boasted interest and ruining his dearest hopes. A bit further on down the page, Henry was convinced of his father's believing it to be an advantageous connection, that is Henry's, connection to the Moorlands. 
However, shortly after that, uh, when Tilney was in London, he happened, by a wild coincidence, by the way, to run into Thorpe himself. And Thorpe, who was, quote, irritated by Catherine's refusal, told General Tilney that, in fact, well, listen to what he says right at the bottom of this page, hastened Thorpe, that is, hastened to contradict all that he had said before to the advantage of the Morelands confessed himself to have been totally mistaken in his opinion of their circumstances and character. And further down in that paragraph on 498, they were, that is the Morelands, in fact, a necessitous family, meaning needy or poor, numerous to almost beyond example, by no means respected in their own neighborhood, as he had lately had particular opportunities of discovering, aiming at a style of life which their fortune could not warrant seeking to better themselves by wealthy connections, a forward, bragging, scheming race. The minute Tilney gets wind of this, he turns Catherine out of Northanger Abbey immediately, ordering her quite rudely to leave first thing in the morning. On 458, Eleanor explains her father and his unhappiness. He certainly is greatly, very greatly discomposed, she says to Catherine. I have seldom seen him more so. His temper is not happy, and something has now occurred to ruffle it in an uncommon degree, some disappointment, some vexation, which just at this moment seems important, but which I can hardly suppose you to have any concern in, for how is it possible? Catherine is utterly bewildered, and saddened. Look on 460. It was as incomprehensible as it was mortifying and grievous. From what could it, it could arise, and where it would end, were considerations of equal perplexity and alarm. Further down the paragraph, what could all this mean but an intentional affront? By some means or other, she must have had the misfortune to offend him. Catherine then reflects on how her feelings in that room have changed from these initial gothic imaginings to the very real afflictions that she now suffers, from fictional terror to now real social disgrace. Look at the bottom of 460. That room in which her disturbed imagination had tormented her on her first arrival was again the scene of agitated spirits and unquiet slumbers, Yet how different now the source of her inquietude from what it had been then! How mournfully superior in reality and substance! Her anxiety had foundation in fact, her fears in probability. And with a mind so occupied in the contemplation of actual and natural evil, the solitude of her situation, the darkness of her chamber, the antiquity of the building— were felt and considered without the smallest emotion, and though the wind was high and often produced strange and sudden noises throughout the house, she heard it all as she lay awake, hour after hour, without curiosity or terror. This is what David Shepard's notes call the villainy of normal life. Look at page 499. This is note 41. General Til Tilney's villainy is the villainy of normal life, committed for ordinary motives by men who are accepted members of society. He includes, by the way, John Thorpe in that. They are both villains of normal life, 
and further down that note, the last couple of lines. One of Jane Austen's main goals and achievements as a novelist is to show the virtues and vices of ordinary life and to demonstrate that the consequences of either and the struggles between them can have as great a moral significance as the more extreme consequences and conflicts that other novelists present. And the contrast that she's offering so visibly in that episode in the bedroom is clearly the division between the former Gothic imagination that she was having and the present reality of her situation. And so Catherine Moreland returns to Fullerton, not in the manner that Jane Austen would like to be recounting. On 472, she says, A heroine returning at the close of her career to her native village, in all the triumph of recovered reputation and all the dignity of a countess, with a long train of noble relations in their several phaetons, and three waiting maids in a travelling chaise and four, behind her, is an event on which the pen of the contriver may well delight to dwell. It gives credit to every conclusion, and the author must share in the glory she so liberally bestows. But my affair is widely different. I bring back my heroine to her home in solitude and disgrace, and no sweet elation of spirits can lead me into minuteness. At this point, it looks to Catherine like the entire novel will have been a bright, shiny interlude in her otherwise dull provincial life, when suddenly Henry Tilney arrives at the Moorlands to propose to her. He explains that his father has been the cause of all of their misfortune. Look at the top of 494. The general had had nothing to accuse her of, nothing to lay to her charge, but her being the involuntary, unconscious object of a deception which his pride could not pardon, and which a better pride would have been ashamed to own. She was guilty only of being less rich than he had supposed her to be. The general ultimately does swallow his pride, though apparently he never apologizes directly to Catherine, and in a very hasty conclusion to the novel, his daughter Eleanor is married off to a charming, rich, and titled aristocrat, and they prevail on him to bless Henry's marriage to Catherine. In the final sentence of the novel, Jane Austen writes on page 508, the general's unjust interference so far from being really injurious to their felicity, was perhaps rather conducive to it by improving their knowledge of each other and adding strength to their attachment. And so, Jane Austen offers us this tale of an ordinary villain, prepared to do whatever is necessary, break every rule of propriety, manipulate any person he wishes, who earns no approbation or punishment for his actions, and who achieves his ambitions to marry off his children to wealthy, entitled partners. Although we do never learn what became of his philandering son, Frederick. And Catherine Moreland, meanwhile, lives happily ever after, presumably, 
with a husband who loves nothing more than to mock her language and her passionate imagination. Gently, we can hope. been listening to Open Book, a podcast about interpreting literature with Michael Elliott. The next episode is on books 7 to 8 of John Milton's Paradise Lost, in which Adam and the Archangel Raphael swap stories of God's creations of the universe and of mankind. Meanwhile, you can search me up in the usual places. It should turn up my blog if you spell my surname U-L-L-Y-O-T, or go straight there by typing j.mp slash Elliot. You can also find me on Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter in descending order of regularity. And then there's old-fashioned email, Elliot at ucalgary, that is U-C-A-L-G-A-R-Y dot C-A. The music from this episode is courtesy of the Open Well-Tempered Clavier Project and performed by Kimiko Ishizaka. (music) 